있으십니까? 크리스찬 포드카세 어서오세요 이 세상에서 마지막 라디오 my friends welcome to another episode of christian podcast we have a special guest today jay kim and he wrote a book called the analog church it's an amazing book and he's right here digitally <laughs> with us on the screen uh so we want to welcome him but before we before you guys know anything about him We're going to ask him this question. Is AI the beast? <laughs> oh man, you're you're starting off heavy. I'm the wrong guy to ask. I'm the wrong guy to ask. I have a friend named Jason Thacker actually who's an incredible thinker and writer. I know you're joking, but uh seriously just to give Jason a plug, he actually Uh, has a book about that, about Christianity and a Christian response to artificial intelligence. So look him up, Jason Thacker on Amazon, and you can have him on the podcast. You could ask him that question. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, that's a, that's a good lead. Uh, thank you so much. And, well, Jay Kim is here. Jay, can you tell us a little bit about your background? I was you know, reading a little bit that you uh, you're in a church in Santa Cruz. Is that still what you're doing? Just tell us a little bit about where you come from. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I uh, thanks for asking. Thanks for having me on. I'm thrilled to be on. Um, yeah, I grew up in the in the Silicon Valley, you know, in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been here basically my whole life. I wasn't born here, but I moved here when I was really young and I never left. So this is home. And I've always, uh, you know, all of my ministry life has, has been spent um, at churches, local churches, here in the Silicon Valley, mostly. Um, from 2016 until the summer of 2020, I served on staff uh, at a church called Vintage Faith in Santa Cruz, like you said. So when I wrote the book, which is why it's in my bio at the back of the book, I was on staff at Vintage Faith. But after the book came out, um, uh, again, you know, this past summer, summer of 2020, Uh, I transitioned back to a church where I was on staff previously called Westgate Church, uh, right in the heart of the Silicon Valley in San Jose. And um, and I still, I actually still am a part of the teaching team over at Vintage. So I still, you know, make my way over to Vintage pretty regularly, about once a month. But uh, my day-to-day -day ministry life is spent now uh, at a church called Westgate Church here in the Silicon Valley. So cool, man. I, I just want to tell you this um, December, as uh, the new year was was coming up, we took our family on a, kind of like a little road trip. We're here in Southern California, and uh, I have three kids and my wife. So we went to San Francisco, and I hadn't been in San Francisco since 1989. That was like the first time I ever went to San Francisco. Uh, so a long time ago, and actually when I went, like two months later, uh, it's when the big earthquake hit, and then you no know, the the bridge collapsed and all of that. That was crazy. So, anyways, I was like, wow, what what does San Francisco look like 30 something years later under a pandemic? And here we go, right? And but one of the you no know, the things that catched my attention is like you're saying, you no know, the Silicon Valley and how. I mean, we, we kind of did a tour visiting like all the buildings of all these major corporations. So we, you know, we went by the Facebook building, the Google building, the Apple building. Even we went to, you know, the, the garage where Steve Jobs kind of like started his, you know, his computing skills or whatever. 
And I mean, it was just fun for my kids, right, to see, oh, wow, this is this is the building. This is where it all is. And then we went to San Francisco, you no know, Twitter headquarters. Uh, and I mean, some of these, these uh, giants, I'm just mentioning them because it, it's kind of, you no. Know, I think we'll, we'll come across them as we talk about your book and some of the ideas that you have in the analog church book. I love the kind of like the subtitle of the book why we need real people places and things in the digital age and i want to start with this that you wrote on uh, page 14 and it says the digital age has affected and in some cases infected all spheres of life including the most vital part of the christian life discipleship Tell me about this idea, man, of um, relevance versus transcendence. Um, I, it's hard to argue against that that idea that the digital age has affected everything, you know. And uh, we're that's not all bad. I mean, you and I are having this conversation because of digital technology. Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to, to do this. And so there's, there's definitely tremendous benefit. It's brought a lot of convenience and comfort to our lives. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I believe technology itself is, is amoral. It doesn't have a built-in morality necessarily. Um, it, it has everything to do with how we leverage technology. So an example would be a hammer. You know, you, a hammer could be used for good in the, in the hands of a very skilled carpenter. Hammers are necessary tools that can be used to build, you know, and build up and provide um, shelter and other things. Uh, but a hammer can also be a deadly weapon when it's misused, right? So all tools are that way. And I think that's the point I'm trying to make. And the dichotomy you present there that I get into in the book, the difference between relevance and, and transcendence, I use that dichotomy in the book because it's been helpful for me uh, when I think about appropriate uses and harmful misappropriate uses, inappropriate uses of digital technology. I think that uh, particularly when it comes to the church, you know, the, the intersection between digital technology and our ecclesiology, when we leverage digital technology to just try to make our churches feel like look, feel, sound, uh, just like everything else in culture, in other words, to be really relevant to culture, I think we're actually doing a great disservice to the people that we're trying to reach. You know, I think most of the time our intentions are well and good. And so we use and leverage digital in order to make sure that our churches look and sound and feel really cool and really hip. And like we're on the cutting edge of technology and all of those things. But when we do that, I think we risk uh, losing the gift that the church has always had to offer the world, which is actually not relevance, but transcendence, the invitation to an experience and a space, and most importantly, a community that doesn't look, sound, and feel like everything else that people experience in their digitally saturated lives. You know, and I think this bears itself out in uh, anecdotal ways. I'm sure that you uh, as well as many other church leaders have had conversations with, uh, in particular, young people who will surprise you by essentially saying, you know, when I go to a church, I'm actually not hoping that that church sounds like everything else I experience in pop culture. I'm not hoping for that church and the leaders to look and sound and feel like everything else I experience in pop culture. In fact, we're seeing some of the unraveling of are um, dangerous, reckless, leaning into relevance in the ways that we're seeing um, some really high-profile Christian leaders and their really tragic falls from grace as they were being hyper-relevant to culture. But when we do that, especially in a post-Christian world, you know, a, a reckless leaning into relevance can actually 
um, it, it leaves us exposed to being co-opted by the culture rather than confronting the culture and, and offering it the gift of transcendence, the gift of something that, that you can only find in the community of God's people. And so there's a lot to say there. Obviously, I wrote entire chapters about that in the book, but hopefully that gives you sort of a basic paradigm for, for what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's so good. I, I, I guess one of my my uh, takeaways or the way I'm picturing it is if uh, the church falls prey to this, the church just becomes pop culture, right? It just becomes part of the, you know, the, the, the culture around us rather than being transformed and renewed, right? Like Paul would invite us to. Uh, you talk about three ideas uh, about the values of the digital age uh, on the book. And you say like speed choices and individualism and then how how they create impatience, shallowness, and isolation. Can you tell me a little bit about these three ideas of the digital age? Yeah, yeah. I'll try to do that quickly. Um, yeah, I, I propose that the digital age and its technologies are built on those three values, speed, choice, individualism. What I mean is that in the digital age, digital technologies constantly have to get faster. 3G is not enough, we need 4G. 4G is not enough, we need 5G. Um, you know, I, I can still remember when we first got internet in our home, we had dial-up and it sounded like one of those old crazy printers, you know, it was like, <laughs> bam, bam, yeah. right? It took, you know, five minutes to get online and my mom would pick up the phone to make a call and then I would lose internet. And it was so slow, but at the time it didn't feel slow. At the time I was like, this is magical. Mm. You know, this mm. is incredible. And now if you went to a friend's house and you're like, hey, what's your Wi-Fi? And they told you, we don't have Wi-Fi, we have dial-up. You would think that your friend was a <laughs> barbarian. You know, it was yeah. like, what are you, a caveman? What are you, what are you even doing? <laughs> and that's because that's the way technology in general, but digital technology in particular works. It always has to be faster. So speed is a value. Uh, choices obviously are value. I mean, just go on Amazon, type in anything you want, and you'll see choice is an incredible value in the digital age. One or two options are not nearly enough. We need, you know, page after page after page of options, which the digital age is happy to offer us. And then uh, individualism, you know, everything about our digital experiences are curated for our personalities and our preferences and our individual um, leanings. You know, that's just true. All of us have heard the phrase, the echo chamber, you know, that when you go yeah. on social media, for example, you're not really going into a whole other world that's broad and vast. You're entering into a very narrow little echo chamber. What you see on social media is for the most part, um, an affirmation of your own worldviews and beliefs. And so everything is curated for us. And now we don't even do the curating ourselves, you know, computer algorithms curate our digital experiences to uh, elicit particular responses out of us, specifically to basically monetize our time and our energy that we're giving to the, the digital age. And so, so those three values, they're not bad in and of themselves. Speed, choice, individualism, those, not, those are not immoral on their own. The problem is the more time we spend on our digital devices, those values, because they are ever increasing in measure and because they're going unchecked, because there's no sort of accountability for them, they're unforming us or deforming us in terms of the sorts of people we're becoming. And what I suggest in the book is that the faster and faster our digital experiences get, the more impatient we become. Makes mm. sense, right? As yeah. things get faster and faster, we're going to naturally become more impatient. Uh, as, as the broadening of choices increases at an exponential level, we become really shallow. There's no reason to sit and sink deeply into any one thing when we know that there's an endless array of choices out there for us. So then the moment something doesn't suit us just right, 
we know there's a million other options. And so we just move on. And that makes us incredibly shallow because we move so quickly from one thing to another. We're seeing this with churches, right? Church hopping was a phenomenon before the internet. But I can tell you this, the internet has has vastly accelerated the phenomenon of church hopping, particularly in COVID and this pandemic as everyone has gone online. The reality is it's so easy for me if this sermon at this church doesn't, I don't like it or it does, it's not as fun or it's not as engaging. It's like I click three buttons and I can get to another church, right? Makes yeah. us incredibly <laughs> shallow rather than sinking deeply into uh, any one thing. And then the individualism and, and the statistics and the research bears this out. The individualism of the digital age makes us incredibly isolated. You know, the digital age and social media in particular, which promised us the, the you know, uh, thought that we would be able to connect more deeply with one another and more conveniently. Well, the reality is with the rise of social media, there has been a parallel rise in feelings of isolation and loneliness and depression. And that's not an accident because the pseudo connections we make online are not the sorts of real deep meaningful connections that human beings really need. And so it makes us really isolated. Um, and I think those are things we have to pay attention to as we continue to uh, leverage digital technologies more responsibly. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so good, man. Um, yeah, you mentioned uh, one of the kind of like subtitles in one of the chapters is comparison, copycats, and caricatures. And then you say something like, today we have access to the best sermons and church music in the world at the touch of their fingertips. So why don't people just stay home and listen and, uh, you know, from the comfort of, of their beds on Sunday mornings? And I'm assuming, you know, this was written before COVID, like you're saying right now. Now this is kind of like the reality, right? People are tuning in from the comfort of their couches and homes uh, in a sense. Man, tell me about the 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 idea of the like the difference between how we went from the print age to the broadcasting age and then to the digital age and how i mean to me it's just uh, how how close the broadcast age and the digital age are from each other versus the print age you no know, 500 years kind of like went by uh just tell me a little bit about this uh these ideas of the the ages Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I get into it more in depth in the book, but basically I go back to, you know, uh, Gutenberg when he invents the printing press. That changes everything, right? We go from an, uh, an oral culture to a literate culture or a literary culture. What that means is uh, the overwhelming majority of human populations at the time before the print press, printing press, were illiterate. And so the way we passed on stories, the way we um, uh, in took information, all of that stuff, it was mostly oral, right? And that does something like in an oral culture has been a lot written about this um, much more in depth than I can get into here. But oral cultures have a particular ethos and a particular way they experience life. And when we went to the print age, you know, when Gutenberg began mass printing Bibles, that was the first book he printed. And so Bibles got into the hands of individuals for the first time in human history. And literacy rates began to rise because now books were accessible. Uh, it changed things. It changed things specifically for the church. It elevated the life of the mind. This is actually when we began to see sermons replace the communion table as the central piece of the worshiping life of the gathered church. That's actually directly correlated to the elevation of the uh, of the mind and um, the increase in literacy and all of those sorts of things. It had other effects as well, where we lost the art of communal reading. So before the printing press, if you wanted to read the Bible, you actually couldn't read it. You had to gather as God's people and somebody who had a Bible could read the Bible, would read it out loud, and you would, again, orally ingest the word of God. And that changed because now you can read the Bible by yourself 
yourself at home. And so mm. our engagement with scripture went from being primarily communal to primarily personal, private. That's not a bad thing, uh, but but it does change things. And so um, when you go to the broadcast age, the middle of the 20th century, when televisions began to make their way into basically every home, um, you saw the rise of uh, sort of a broadcast ethos in the church um, that, you know, this is, I, I get into it a little bit in the book, but basically when we began to see television studios pop up as television uh, shows began to populate uh, American homes, we began to see a change in the way um, churches began to worship. You know, church services began to change themselves. We started segmenting services. We still do this. Mm. We began segmenting services the way we do a television program. So you have an opening section of 10 minutes in the church. It's usually songs. And then there's like a five-minute commercial break in the church. It's usually announcements. And then there's another 20-minute section of, you know, another segment. And that's usually maybe more songs or a performance or something in the church. And then there's another little commercial break in the church. It might be kind of like a welcome from the host or whatever. And then another 30 minute section where it's, you know, a long section of the TV show in the church, that would be the sermon. And then another little break and, you know, so on and so forth. And we also saw, you know, even physically, um, architecturally, the gathering spaces of churches change where in the mid 20th century, we began to see church sanctuaries become spaces designed, architecturally designed less for communities and more for audiences. This is when we began to see the megachurch movement and big stages with big lights and giant screens and seating that were like theater style seating where you came to sit and observe and, uh, you know, take in content or whatever. And so I, I take us on that journey in the book because I'm trying to get us to the digital age and to live with an awareness that whatever era we find ourselves in, for good and for bad, they have an effect on our ecclesiology. It changes the way we think about what it means to be the church. And so we have to pay attention to that. And in particular in the digital age, I think we have to pay really careful attention because the digital age is the first age in which the technologies of that age are um, by their very nature, disembodied technologies. Mm. So with a book, it was a physical thing you would hold in your hand. Uh, with the television broadcast age, uh, TVs were fixed locations. They were big, clunky things that sat in your living room. And television shows, remember, up until very recently, uh, they were on, you know, if you wanted to watch Friends in the 90s, you would have to gather at 8 p.m. on Thursday nights around the couch together to watch the TV show. And everything has changed in the last 20 to 30 years, where now when I watch a TV show, there's no set place. There's no, no set time. I could watch it myself whenever I want. I could watch it alone, laying in bed late at night. In fact, I can watch entire episodes. I can watch entire seasons. I can binge an entire show, season season <laughs> one, two, and three, in a yeah, matter of yeah. a couple of days, you know? And I can do it alone. In fact, most people do it alone. So um, we have to pay attention to that. How is that affecting uh, our ecclesiology, you know? And we're already beginning to see that with like, on-demand church services mm -hmm. you don't have to show up anywhere you don't have to be with people just watch the church service whenever you want it's always up there on our youtube page now i'm not saying that's necessarily bad i am saying however we have to consider when we move in that direction what it is what is it that we are leaving behind that we should not leave behind when it comes to what it means to be the church Awesome. Yeah. And I think I want to get to, you know, what is it that we're leaving behind that we shouldn't leave behind? Um, kind of like towards the the end of our conversation. Uh, but before we get there, there's, I mean, like I'm saying, right, I studied communications and I think when I read McLuhan, if I'm pronouncing it right, and the four laws, I don't know, something clicked with me and I'm like, yeah, I think I, I, I think I, you know, 
I uh, studied him back in the days because you know, I went to school kind of like a while ago now. Um, but c tell me super quick, you know, about the ideas of McLuhan's four laws and why they made a comeback. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, Marshall McLuhan was a 20th century writer, social commentator, uh, philosopher, some would say prophet. <laughs> um, he, uh, he was really famous for a while, and then he kind of went crazy, and people think he lost his mind, and then he died. And then in recent years, his work has sort of made a comeback because in the middle to late 20th century, he said some stuff that at the time sounded so wacky that now you can look up some of these videos on YouTube. Now you realize he was so prescient. Like he, he was talking about technologies that he thought would come about uh, in the next, you know, 50 years or so. And it, it happened. And at the time when he said it, like in the seventies, he sounded like a lunatic. Um, but there are YouTube videos where he's describing, you know, technologies that would come about in the future where from the comfort of your own home, you could uh, push a few buttons or, or make a few calls. And um, these things that you wanted to buy would be right there on your front doorstep. And at the time, that sounded weird and crazy the way he was describing it. But now you watch those videos now and you're like, oh, he's talking about Amazon <laughs> oh, or eBay. This is so yeah. wild, you know? And so yeah. because of that and for some other reasons, he started to make a comeback. And he's, uh, he's famous for lots of things. But one of the things that he's best known for, he had this thing that he called the four laws of media. And by media, he didn't mean like CNN or Fox News or whatever. He meant something much larger. He meant any medium that extends human capacity so for him like a car would be in this category of media or a medium because the car extends the capacity of um, the human legs for example the ability to travel well with a car what you could do in limited capacity with your own legs has now been extended and he had this really insightful idea, the four laws of media. And the four laws are basically this. One, he says, they're questions, essentially. He says, you have to ask four critical questions because these four critical questions, what he calls laws, tell you and they, they shape for you how you understand any sort of technology you may be using. He says, one, you have to ask the question, what does this technology or this media or medium, what does it enhance or improve or make possible? In other words, what human capacity does it extend? And then two, you have to ask the question, well, what does it push aside or make obsolete? And then three, you have to ask the question, what does it retrieve that was previously pushed aside or made obsolete? And then four, what does it turn into? And this is the most important question. What does that technology or media into when it is pushed to an extreme? And McLuhan's proposal was that almost all technologies, all medias or mediums, when you get to question four, when you push them to their extreme, they turn in on themselves and actually work against the very human capacity that you were originally intending to extend. So a great example is the smartphone. If you ask the question, what human capacity does the smartphone enhance or improve or make possible? The answer would be very simply the human capacity to talk and to listen, right? That's yeah. what a phone is supposed to do. Uh, you know, years ago, <clears throat> you know, before Alexander Graham Bell or whatever, uh, you're living in, you know, Orange County and um, I'm living here in Northern California. And the reality is if we wanted to talk like this, uh, the reality is we'd have to travel for hours to get to each other. In fact, before Alexander Graham Bell, it might have been days because there's no, you know, we would have been on horseback or something. Well, now with the phone, it extends the capacity. 
on a phone, you and I can talk and listen to each other. Uh, and it wouldn't take us days. It would take us a few seconds just to call each other. That's what it enhances. What does it push aside and make obsolete? Well, it, it pushes aside and makes obsolete lots of things. Um, for example, letter writing. You know, if we wanted to communicate before, it might have been the best option for us might have been to write letters to each other. And it takes months, you know, or weeks or days at least to get to each other. Well, now it pushes that aside. If I have something urgent to say to you, I can call you on a phone. And now we have email so I could even write you. But just sticking with the phone, that's what it pushes aside. Just one thing. It pushes aside lots of things. Uh, another thing it pushes aside is like getting more um, recent would be like pay phones. Like mm, when's the last yeah. time you saw a pay phone, <laughs> yeah. right? I, I still remember if I, if I was like driving somewhere <clears throat> or I, I needed to make a call and I wasn't home, I would have to grab a few quarters from my car, find the nearest pay phone, punch them in. I'd have to make sure I had the person's phone number in, in memory or written down. And then I would call from a pay phone. Well, there are no more pay phones because now we have smartphones. So that another thing it pushes aside or makes obsolete. Well, what does it retrieve that was push, uh, previously pushed aside or made obsolete? Well, one of the interesting things about smartphones, it actually retrieves image capture. So our mm. smartphones are no longer just phones. For many of us, they're cameras. They're, they're really high quality cameras. And so before smartphones, if I wanted to take a picture, I had to make sure I had my big clunky camera with me that I rarely took around with me. And so most of the time I wasn't snapping images, snapping photos of my life, but now I can snap photos of anything I want, anytime I want, because I've got this high quality camera in my back pocket. So that's one thing that it retrieves, right? For just as an example, but for the most important question, what happens when the media or the technology is pushed to its extreme? When the smartphone first came out, it was a revolution because it was a smartphone. It wasn't just a phone. It, in fact, wasn't even just a camera. It was access to the internet. And so now it's been pushed to its extreme. Like if I were to ask the people listening to this podcast, what do you primarily use your phone for? The overwhelming number of people listening to this would say something other than talking to and listening yeah. to people. Wow. We call them smartphones, but they're not phones. Mm. In fact, go to any, I mean, you know, after COVID, when restaurants and coffee shops open up, or think about a dinner table with a family. Go to any communal space where people are physically spending time with one another. It is a very sadly common experience to see people nowadays sitting face to face, but not communicating, losing themselves to their smartphone checking Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat or Facebook or whatever, checking the news, checking their email, but we've all had this experience. And so what happens when the medium or technology is pushed to its extreme? It inverts in on itself and it actually destroys the capacity that we were originally intending to extend. Remember, going back to question one, the intention of the phone was to extend our capacity to communicate, to hear and to listen and to speak to one another. And now that the phone has been pushed to its extreme, it's folding in on itself and it's actually destroying our ability to communicate even when we're face to face with one another. So that was a long roundabout answer, but I think it's important. It's a critical mm -hmm. premise in the book. And I think we have to think about how digital technologies are folding in on themselves because they've been taken to the extremes. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like you are um, almost describing how an idol works, right? That it ends up turning on um, against you at the end. Ah, so good, man. Let's talk about one, one more challenge and then let's talk about some of the solutions 
that kind of you, you you bring to the table on the book. But I really love this this analogy that you have on the book uh, between the Tower of Babel and then the digital age. So can you uh, no, just elaborate a little bit on, on um, how are those related or connected? Yeah. Yeah, the Tower of Babel story, which sort of ends the opening section of the Bible, you know, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, uh, is it's really one story. There's lots of stories in there, but it's intended to be read as one particular story. And that particular story is the story of um, a good God creating a good world and how that good world went awry. And that whole big meta narrative, it concludes with the Tower of Babel. And what's really fascinating about the Tower of Babel story to me is that there's like a four part movement to the story. Uh, the story begins by telling us that all of the people were together, they were unified. And then um, their ambition takes over, they get really ambitious. They say they want to build a tower to the heavens, and there's a lot of contextual stuff in there. I get into some of it in the book, but they have an ambition. They want to build a tower to the heavens, and they specifically say so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered, right? They want to continue to be unified as a powerful people, and, and their ambition uh, makes them want to build this incredible tower so that they can reach the heavens, essentially reach the gods, reach godlike status so that they can make a name for themselves. And what the story really fascinatingly tells us is that they leverage technology. It tells us specifically that they use bricks instead of stone and they use tar as mortar to put the bricks together. That's technological language. And why is that in there, right? There's lots of reasons, but one of the reasons I believe the story is intending to tell us this is what happens when people use human ingenuity for selfish ambition. And so they use technology. They begin unified. They have ambition. They leverage technology. And then how does the story end? God um, twists up their language where they don't speak the same language anymore. And then the story tells us then they are scattered all throughout the earth. And so the four-part movement is unified they begin unified they have this selfish ambition they leverage technology to to satisfy that ambition and it actually leads to their disunit dis disunification or their scattering and what i propose is that um that same thing is happening in the digital age you know we we want to be a, a collective people. I think all of us have a desire for unity. I mean, we're seeing that now, especially in light of everything happening in our country. We wish there was more unity, uh, but we also were really selfish and uh, we have ambition, selfish ambition. We often leverage technology. Again, we're seeing this with um, how destructive in many ways social media can be, you know? Uh, and what, what it's doing is it's leading to our scattering. We're such a disconnected, divided, fractured people. And so that, that's, that's essentially the, the point I'm trying to make with the Tower of Babel story. Yeah, I love, the, I love that um, analogy with the Tower of Babel. And, uh, well, I want to talk about the difference between communication and commune and but you know as i'm thinking of the of the church you know how is this impacting the like you're saying our ecclesiology no there was this comment on the book that you said uh mark zuckerberg made facebook was becoming the new church <laughs> right um but how do how do we how do we, what is the church, right? What is the difference between this communication devices and actually communing as the, as the church, as the people of God? What, what is the difference? Uh, I mean, how should we leverage technology in light of all these challenges? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. Uh, the simplest way for me to respond is to say that I think... Um, communicating 
is about primarily it's about the exchange of information, but communing is primarily about the exchange of presence. Uh, and that, that's a dichotomy that I present in the book. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so critically important that as much as we can, when we can, and I know for most of us right now, we can't because of the pandemic, but when we can, as much as we can, I believe it is critically important that we continue to do the inconvenient, difficult work of gathering together as much as possible in real time and in real space. Because while we can communicate information digitally, uh, we can only commune, we can only really exchange our full whole bodied presence with one another in analog, in person, shoulder to shoulder. Um, and there's a lot to say about that, but that's probably the simplest, simplest way that, that I, can, I can present it. And, and I get, you know, obviously more into that um, in the book. Yeah, the idea of presence, I love it. And you have some, some beautiful stories there on the book. Um, you know about how to be present, even in the moments of, of somebody else's pain and And sometimes, the, I mean, in, in your story, you say sometimes you don't have to say anything, right? In somebody else's pain, all you got to do is show up and be there, right? And, and lend a shoulder. Wow. How do we help people put down their screens and show up with their whole selves? Hmm. Man, I wish I had a really simple answer to that question <laughs> and i don't um i think it's a formational question you know so for those listening who are church leaders in particular i think we have to always ask the question and this isn't just a digital age problem it's a it's a human issue um i think we always have to be asking the question what is it that we're doing and um And how is what we are doing forming our people for good or for bad? And, and to make the right choices, you know, uh, and to ask those questions thoughtfully and critically, to ask them in community, to ask them prayerfully, you know, and, and I'm talking about every little thing, like, you know, all of our churches are online right now, or most of our churches, uh, our church is online right now, because where I live, Uh, we're sheltering in place indefinitely because the numbers are spiking with COVID-19. And so we're online, everything's digital, but we can't just say, okay, we have the technology. We'll just do this forever. You know, we have to ask the question, how is this forming our people? How is it unforming our people? And we are having those conversations all the time on a weekly basis here uh, at our church with our leadership team. And so that's not, you know, I don't know that that's the most helpful answer, but I think it is an important answer in terms of our posture and our approach to the way we're leveraging any technology and any opportunity. We have to ask the question, uh, how is it forming our people? And if we can do that, if we can honestly and, and robustly answer that question, then I think the path before us is going to become much clearer. Mm-hmm. Man, it's so good. I love, I love the book, man. I, I, I mean, I'm a kind of like a futurist, and when I think of technology, it excites me. But at the same time, I, I realized, you know, my pastor always says, you know, your, your biggest strength can also be your, your greatest weakness, right? Um, so I try to pay attention to that because I'm so futuristic, and sometimes I think, wow, how can, how is this? becoming because i think of the future and then if one side of me can look at it through hope and i'm like okay there's it's good you know we're gonna be okay but then because i'm futuristic my other side can look at it like totally hopeless and be like oh man this digital age is crushing us and you no know, it's making us isolated and it's damaging us and uh and even these ideas are Uh, like you're saying, they're they're they connect to us as humans, and they affect the church. 
But the reality is that, you know, as humans and because of our psychology and the nature of, of how we are created, um, we are so affected by this, right? By the digital age and even, you know, like I've been watching, you know, I watched the, the Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma and Tristan Harris, who is kind of like leading up this, um, you know, tech, humane technology thingy or something like that. Um, but these ideas that, man, even people outside of the church, right, are saying these, these tools that we create are actually damaging us when, when we don't um, pay attention to how they are controlling us. And even, you know, they talk about like AI and the, how the searching algorithm works and how everything kind of like you were saying at the beginning, right? Everything is tethered so that, that uh, it's accustomed to who you are, right? It's uh, everything is for you. And um, it's like you're saying, right? The echo chamber, it's just the individual that's, that's who we care about because eventually, I mean, we're going to monetize. And just the comparison between that and you no, know, you call you you say the digital lever and the intermittent variable rewards dynamic. Uh, so interesting, you know, pushing the lever on on the slot in in a Vegas machine. How does that relate to how we read scripture? Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a whole section in the book. I guess the simplest way for me to try to explain it, um, when it comes to the way we engage the Bible, uh, you know, some people assume what I'm going to say is, don't read the Bible on your phone, just read a paper Bible. And that's not <laughs> what I say at all. I, I think reading the Bible on your phone or listening to it, I think those are great. You know, although I think there's a very unique value to reading it you know, on a physical paper Bible as well. There's actually some research that shows that our brains engage the information very differently when we're reading physically on paper than looking digitally and certainly when we're just listening. But um, that's beside the point. For me, you know, the main point I'm trying to make is that the way the digital age is changing us when it comes to the literary mind, you know, I said earlier, we're becoming far more impatient and shallow in the digital age. Uh, and I, you know, you touched on a lot of things there that, that I get into more deeply in the book, but you can, you know, this wasn't me, but Tristan Harris, who you mentioned, um, he talks about how uh, early on when they were designing smartphones, for example, um, you know, they, they did a lot of research in terms of how they designed the refresh mechanism. So when you refresh most of the apps you use on your phone, it's almost always the same mechanism. You pull down on the screen, there's some sort of spinning lever, and then it pops back up and it gives you the refresh, the update on the page you were looking at. Well, that's because uh, of various reasons, but one of the reasons is because they found, psychologists found that, you know, early in the 20th century when they began designing slot machines for casinos, the reason old school, they're different now, but the reason old school slot machines were like a lever you pull down, some things would spin, and then the lever pops up and it tells you what you won, the reward. <clears throat> they found that like the human brain uh, has a very strong uh, sort of magnetic draw to that movement you know, pull down, spin, pop up. There's something addictive to that. That's why uh, the refresh button on your um, apps work the same way. Pull down, spin, pop up, you know? So it's all very intentional. And the way that's connected to the way we think about the Bible and engage the Bible, I think we think about the Bible as a slot machine. The digital age is training so many of us to think about the Bible as a slot machine. What I mean is, you know, those who read the Bible, even they usually think of the Bible as sort of a, a slot machine where you open it up, you know, and you find a verse and you read a couple of verses and then it's supposed to give you the necessary encouragement or fuel for the day. And then on you go. That's not bad, but I don't think that that's primary 
the Bible is a long meta narrative, a library of 66 books that were originally written and intended to be read, listened to, and read as long format texts. And when we never read the Bible as long format texts, we might be getting bits and pieces of the story, but we miss out on the big story. And when we miss out on the big story, we leave huge gaping holes in not just our theology, but our theopraxy, the way we understand what it means to live as the people of God. And so there's a lot more to be said there, but the, the digital age and the way we use digital technologies has and continues to have a profound effect on the liter literary mind in particular. And that then has a very strong effect on the way we understand and misunderstand the Bible, which can really stunt the, the discipleship formation process of becoming the people that God has called us to become. Mm-hmm. Wow, man, that's so good. And, and I mean, it's profound, but it's, uh, it's real, right? We have to, to pay attention to this digital age. And I think like you're saying, right, if we are maybe church leaders and, uh, no members of the, of the church, we got to pay attention on, on how this is affecting society and the way we relate to one another and how, we can help, you know, people show up with their full selves, right? And and I don't know, this might, like you're saying, right? We, right now we have the COVID challenge, um, but even even in that, right? How, <laughs> even if we're on a Zoom call, right? How can we be fully present with with whomever we're talking with in that moment, right? Ah, so good, man. I love how in the book you also talk about this thing called the secret ingredient. And you say it's slow. <laughs> I didn't say that. Oh, yeah, that, that's that right. Was woman. That was, I was a, a woman, woman in Kenya, Africa. I was there on a mission trip many years ago, and uh, she cooked this incredible meal. And uh, it was incredible. It was this, like, goat stew. It's, like, one of the finest meals I've ever had in this slums of Nairobi, Kenya, like incredible. And uh, a bunch of us were, you know, we shared in this incredible meal. They were so generous and kind and warm. And afterwards, a couple of us asked her, you know, how did you cook this? What's the secret ingredient? How, how do you do it? You know, is there like some sort of special spice that you can only get here in Kenya or something? And she said, no, the secret ingredient, big smile on her face. The secret ingredient is slow. That's what she said. And we're like, what is she talking about? And, you know, in hindsight, what we understood was there's no, <clears throat> there's no replacing taking your time when it comes to extracting the flavors of food. I mean, any good chef will tell you that. You can microwave something and it'll at least be warm, but mm -hmm. it won't have the depth of flavor that it would if you just go you know, low and slow, low heat and cook something over a fire for a long period of time. That's what brings out the richness. And so it is in our faith, you know? Uh, and so that's the point I'm trying to make that um, <clears throat> going slow, being patient uh, is, is critically important, you know, not just with scripture, but with all things of, of discipleship, I think. Yeah. That's one, that's, one of the reasons why in this podcast, at least, I said, okay, this, this podcast might be one hour long, but so be it, you know, because I know, no, like retention span is 20 minutes or 30 minutes, so your podcast should be super short. And it's okay, you know, there's a lot of uh, podcasts that are that way, and I think it's good, like you're saying, right, it's convenient and you learn something. But I think in, in this show, at least, I feel like, okay, I want I want people to not only learn, I think I want for them to feel like they're connecting to whomever's talking, right? Whether it's like you or me or you know, whoever the guest is. Um, a little bit of the sense of like, we're getting to know each other uh, as we talk rather than just give me the information I need. You know, just give me like all the all the right answers, right? And uh, uh, so anyways, I, I like 
I, I love that idea of slow, you know, and coming from a woman in Kenya, the secret ingredient came from some town, right, in Africa. Wow, that's so cool. I love that. And um, as I think also of the ministry of Jesus, it was a ministry of the, no, a lot of pastors say the uh, a ministry of uh, like stops, right? Like slowing down, like you're in the way to somewhere and then a woman touches you and now you're, you know, you take your time to be there and be fully present when people are kind of like, hey, you know, we have this appointment, we have this thing we got to do. What are you doing here? Spending time with people or extra time with people. And that was his ministry. And even as I think of, I mean, this might be a little, a little bit maybe controversial with the whole, you know, social distancing and stuff. But the fact that Jesus would touch people, even, even though they were sick, and even though, you know, they might, I mean, probably in those days, they didn't know, okay, there's a virus or there's this thing. They just knew, okay, this person's sick. Let's, let's just have him outside of the city. Let's not be close to them because we can get infected or, you know, we can, it can pass on to us. But here's this, this magnificent, beautiful person of Jesus who, who was not afraid to be fully present and touch people. And how that that probably inspired, I, I would just, you know, I'm kind of like picturing it because I, I watched the Chosen you know, series um, of the, the show you know, about the life of Jesus. But one of these moments where he touches the, the leper, right? And all the disciples, I love how the scene goes to the faces of the disciples and like, what are you doing? Are you crazy? Like this guy is, is probably got all kinds of germs and... And no, you, you're going to get him. But no, here he goes and transforms lives. I love it, man. Um, how, I mean, in the book, you, you have a, a, a couple ideas about reading the Bible in, in the analog. And even like this experience that some churches are kind of like experimenting. But this idea of like, we're going to read a letter from the Bible, like from beginning to end, no background music, no, no preaching, no anything. We're just going to read it from beginning to end, just like it was back in, you know, after Jesus left and kind of like the ministry of the disciples took over. Uh, can you just give me a few of those? Um, I don't know if they're tools or maybe just inspiring ideas for churches around the world that might help them? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I just use a couple of examples of friends of mine, you know, who've done things like this. And mostly what I'm trying to point to is that uh, your people will surprise you. If you're a church leader, your people will surprise you with their openness and desire to something that might on the surface sound like it'd be totally boring and there would be no interest. So I, I share a story about a friend of mine who's a pastor out in the Central Valley of California, and he started this thing called Read Scripture, where every Friday morning at like 6 a.m., I think, they said, hey, come out. All we're going to provide is coffee and uh, about an hour every Friday morning before you go to work or school or, you know, whatever, um, to read the scriptures. And literally, we're just going to read the scriptures. We're not going to like preach we're not going to sing not, not that any of that is bad that's all wonderful and beautiful but they carved out a space where they said we're just going to come and read the scriptures in long format we're going to spend an hour every friday reading out loud the scriptures and he was shocked at how many people started coming and coming consistently at 6 a.m just to listen to and read the Bible and and how that was transformative for their community, how it actually changed people's lives. You know, I talk about uh, some other friends of mine who are um, really well known at this point up in Portland, Oregon. Uh, my friend Tim and John, who um, they they started something called the Bible Project, and uh, they create these beautiful animated videos that explain the story of the Bible and different you know theological questions and ideas. And they did something several years ago called um, 
it was just called i think it was just called like the book of revelation or something and it was literally portland oregon i think it was like in a in december or february really cold rainy day and they said hey we're gonna um we're gonna debut our our video on the book of revelation but as we do that the video is only like a seven minute video but as we do that we're gonna actually read aloud the entire book of revelation wow and they had hundreds of people and and most of them young people come out on a cold rainy friday night to sit for over two hours to listen to the book of revelation literally just read word for word you know and again same deal that was a transformative experience for a lot of people so I just share those ideas just to say, you know, it's okay to experiment and your people might surprise you at how not just open, but hungry they are for the simple act of immersing themselves together in community for a long period of time in the scriptures and how that can really transform people's lives. Mm -hmm. Wow. So good, man. And I also love how you, you kind of like suggest this idea of on the book of the, the Lord's Supper and how we you know that element of our kind of like church uh, experience or liturgy. And you no, know, for, for many, maybe many churches or you no, know, throughout the years, I guess it just became kind of like secondary, right? Oh yeah, this is just something we do. And, and actually, I mean, to me, especially here at, at our church here in Palm Harvest in Costa Mesa, because of COVID, um, Taking communion has become even more central to what we do. So now we have, I mean, we have um, one physical gathering. And I mean, this is all like, you know, things open up and then they close down again, right? Um, all the time now. But we we do have the once a month, just come gather and we're going to have communion. You know, that's that's kind of like the the yeast of the program, you know, communion. And we actually just call it communion Sunday. So come hang out, you know, we'll social distance, all of that. And, you know, give you your, uh, the elements. And of course, um, you know, there's a, a little bit of, of teaching and singing, but it's all <laughs> kind of like to, to the point, right? It's all analog. You know, we just bring a guitar, people gather and we serve the elements. And I love this idea because it's, uh, I mean, first it was instituted by, by Jesus, but uh, I wish I would would like for for us to end on this idea of like coming back to the table, right? Coming back to the place where we see each other's faces, where we can almost like be fully present, and not only that, but it's it's enjoyable because of the food elements, right? Like you're saying with this woman in Kenya, just oh, the food was fantastic, right? And sometimes. The people you're with, um, it is what makes it fantastic, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. You said it well. Yeah, communion. I think uh, again, going back a little bit in our conversation, until the printing press, communion was for most uh, church communities the central component of the of the worshiping life of the church. And we've removed that a little bit in the modern Western church. Um, and that's sad to me, you know, and uh, it, what's hopeful to me is I see a lot of churches sort of leaning back into that reality. And I think that's a good thing, you know, um, to take the bread and the cup, to remember the sacrifice of Christ that um, enfolds us into his family, you know, and there's so many beautiful elements about the fact that Jesus asked us not to recite a doctrine or to sing a song or to listen to a sermon to remember him. Although all of those things are critically important. He actually gives us a meal to share mm -hmm. when, when we gather to remember him. And so the more and more we can do that, I think the better. Um, so I'm a fan of, uh, of, breaking bread together as much as possible as we remember Christ together. Mm, I love it, man. Thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, would you like to point people to you know, a place where they can 
find more about you or your book or you know, a website? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, yeah, the book is just called Analog Church and you can find it, you know, wherever they sell books online or if bookstores ever open up. But yeah, online, you can find it anywhere. You can just Google it and it'll take you to several different places. It's on Amazon and all of that. Uh, so if you want the book, you can go there. And then, um, yeah, if you're interested in connecting with me or any of my other work, uh, I have a, a website, jkimthinks.com, jkimthinks.com. And uh, I have a bunch of stuff there that if you're interested, you can check out. So there you go. Awesome. Well, people, if you're listening or watching, this is a phenomenal book, especially if you're you know, you're into like technology and but also ecclesiology, right? And, and, and church and discipleship. Uh, this has some really, really important questions and then some tools uh, on how we can you know, tackle the digital age. Uh, so highly recommend it. So good. Thank you so much, Jay, for being on the show. Jay, do you speak Korean? Uh, very little. I understand it decently, but I speak at it probably like an, a kindergartner level. <laughs> so Okay, so dismiss us with a couple of kindergartner level Korean words. <laughs> oh, dude. Um... I, I don't know. All I can say is like <laughs> goodbye. I can say yeah. goodbye. Say goodbye, yeah. man. Uh, 안녕히 가세요. That would be goodbye. In All right. There you go. So good. <laughs> man, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. No. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure. listening to this episode of Christian Podcast. If you liked this episode, share it with friends and family. Make sure you subscribe and leave a positive review whatever you can. You can also visit christianpodcast.com to learn more about our show. Hasta la vista. <laughs>